Once again, we welcome you back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome a familiar uh, voice back to the show. Uh, that would be Gannon Evans joining us today. Uh, Gannon, for the sake of people meeting you for the first time, take just a second. Tell us a little bit about who you are. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me on again. My name is Gannon Evans. I'm a policy analyst at Kansas Policy Institute. All right. So, um Hey, harvest season has been going on all around uh, where I live. And, uh, you know, I, I try to pay attention a little more than, than not to, okay, how does food get, you know, from the field to, to my plate? I did not realize, though, that uh, after five years, the farm bill was expiring. And, and uh, Gannon, I didn't realize the extent to which um, the federal government has kind of intertwined itself with farming. Tell us about, tell us about uh, the status of the farm bill Tell us about uh, what could be done to make it better. Yeah, you're not alone there, Brian. I mean, over the past couple of weeks with all of the, the drama surrounding Speaker McCarthy being removed and the never-ending stream of people trying to become Speaker, the Farm Bill lapsed and it didn't get renewed. And so currently, thousands of people are sitting here waiting for this funding and just waiting to figure out what Congress is going to do on it next. So for context, the Farm Bill is this term given to this huge spending bill passed by the federal government that covers a variety of agriculture-related subsidies. Um, The biggest portion of it is SNAP, also commonly known as food stamps. So there's a huge bunch of programs in here. And even though the bill lapsed, some of the programs are still being funded because they exist elsewhere in the federal government. So for instance, like food stamps just didn't go away. It's obviously intertwined elsewhere, but there's many different subsidies, many different spending aspects towards America's agricultural sector that are being left waiting right now, not knowing what the plan is for the future. So I, I have to wonder this, Gannon, and and I realize this has been going on for a very long time. You know that uh, you know farmers have depended on these subsidies, and the federal government has helped. Have have we reached a point where there's a dependency? Is it in the interest of these farmers to? I I don't know. I know that you, as you mentioned, that farm bill covers a lot of territory, but I'm concerned when I see how how intertwined it seems like everything's become. Yeah, and you know, that that gets right to the issue of why the farm bill didn't pass. And it's because conservative legislators are approaching the bill with a more skeptical perspective, mainly towards SNAP and reducing the funding there. And there's other legislators that just aren't willing to look at the bill and make cuts. Um, You are right that the American agriculture industry is very unique in the sense that oftentimes subsidies are passed that way without a second glance, but it's actually created a really big welfare issue because oftentimes the people that get the most welfare are some of the largest farms in the country, and it's in fact contributing to the crowding out of smaller farmers. I mean, the 20% largest farms, the top 20% of farms in terms of size, get 80% of all crop subsidies. I mean, that's that's thousands and thousands and millions of dollars over the last, you know, two, three decades. And there's a lot of reasons, a lot of inefficiencies for why this is. So for instance, 
Um, there's a lot of conditions in the farm bill that if you operate a farm with family, then you could get even more subsidies. But wow. the definition of operating a farm with so with family is so loose that you can have a five minute phone call with, say, your brother and say, hey, what, what crop should we plant this season? <laughs> and they could be like, oh, I want to do X, Y and Z. OK, click. That's over one hundred thousand dollars worth of subsidies there if you could this person is attributed to your farm. So there's a lot of issues here where I don't think that the solution is saying, oh, there shouldn't be farm subsidies. I don't think the environment is ready for that conversation, but there's a huge amount of inefficiency going on that I think both Republicans and Democrats need to take a keen eye to. So what are some of the biggest examples of, of waste um, Barring an all-out reform, what, what what could we settle for cutting from this bill? And it would still, you know, pretty much do as it was supposed to. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is uh, this aspect called categorical eligibility with SNAP benefits. So what exactly it is, is if you receive SNAP, you have to qualify for it. But you also could qualify for other welfare programs like uh, temporary Assistance for Needy Families, which is TANF, and state, man and state Maintenance of Effort Funds. And the issue is that people oftentimes can qualify for all of these uh, programs. Like if you qualify for one, you could qualify for the other. And there's this huge overlap of people receiving welfare, and there isn't a lot of control into, okay, how are we making sure that people who need this resource is getting it and you know, there isn't like this huge uh, waste of spending going towards um, potentially people getting more welfare than they need. And by that example, I mean, for instance, there was a Minnesota millionaire who went through the categorical eligibility process and was able to receive SNAP benefits. And it's just like this, this doesn't make sense, right? Like there, there needs to be some tighter scrutiny towards okay, well, let's make sure that we're actually supporting the people who need this program and not creating a bunch of loopholes. Even beyond just, you know, the, you know, uh, proper role of government uh, ethical question, should government be extending welfare in the first place? Beyond that, I think uh, we're, we're looking at a point where this stuff is going to be, it's just not going to be affordable. Government's already doing so many things, running up so many bills. I, I mean, I, I've, sorry, I've lost track. I don't try to keep track of how many more trillions are we in debt? It's, we're in trillions, you know? Mm -hmm. At this point, it's just, it's it's out of control. At some point, I think that that spending is going to stop. I worry about the people who are dependent on these programs. Mm -hmm. You know, what what happens at that point? And hopefully, you know, somewhere you know the state level or local level has stepped up to address those needs and i'm a i'm a big proponent of you know as you mentioned like some people more pundits will say oh we need to get rid of this welfare we need to get rid of that it's just like no like you can't pull out the rug when government has created a dependency between people in the welfare here what you need to do is take a look at every single aspect of the budget, every single subsidy, every single loophole. And even if it's saving a few hundred thousand dollars, even if it's saving millions of dollars against a billion dollar budget, if you do this consistently across the budget, 
that adds up over time. That adds up into billions of dollars over time. And that makes it so that programs are more sustainable, that there isn't a gloat, that the, the, there's some sort of reining in of the federal budget. And I think that especially in agriculture, there hasn't really been an innovative approach to agricultural policy. Um, a good example of this is ethanol, right? Um, ethanol takes up a large amount of land. The government subsidizes ethanol farms, but it's starting to distort the market for food in that when we're seeing food prices be consistently some of the hardest hit by inflation over the last two, three years, and a good chunk of corn production is going towards ethanol, we have to start thinking, are these incentives really worth it? What sort of secondary effects, second, so secondary consequences are being created? And ultimately, how can we stop the growth of government? Okay. Well, it's it's good to see that there, there are people who are working on issues such as this. Um, I Again, the, the Farm Bill had kind of flown under my radar for some time, so it, it'll be very curious to see where it goes from here. And, uh, you know, did, did the near shutdown... Did that did that cause any other you know repercussions in terms of you know other other um, high level stuff that that should be on our radar? Oh yeah, I mean just across the entire federal government, there's there's areas everywhere where right now both parties are pretty unwilling to compromise, even on focusing on efficiency and focusing on just even minor changes that would reduce costs. All right. Um, Gannon, is there is there anything else that you could point us towards in terms of people who want to find out more about this farm bill? Um, for, for those of us who live, you know, in, in farming and agricultural areas, this, this may be, uh, you know, something we want to know a little bit more about. What are some good resources for that? I would really strongly suggest the John Locke Foundation. They're a think tank based out of North Carolina, but they're really paving the way with a lot of research in this sphere. Um, I'm also trying to produce some of my own agricultural research at the Kansas Policy Institute. So you could check out our website for more info there. Okay. I sure appreciate the light you're able to shine on it uh, for us today. Again, we're talking with uh, Gannon Evans. Where can people find you on social media? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. My handle is all lowercase G Evans, E-V-A-N-S 923. Very good. Let's talk again soon. Appreciate it, Brian. Thank you. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome uh, Noah Gould back to the show. Noah, great to catch up with you once again. Tell us, uh, for, for those meeting you for the first time, tell us a little, a little about who you are and what you do. Yeah, well, thanks for having me back, Brian. Uh, it's good to talk with you today. I work at the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, and I run our student programs and alumni programs, and I also have the privilege to write on a variety of topics, uh, business culture, economics, literature, and kind of fit those, uh, some interesting themes together in my writing. Well, we've got a great article to discuss today regarding homelessness. And in particular, I'm looking at the headline of your article, Cash Transfers Are No Solution to Homelessness. Now, 
I know homelessness is a huge problem in some areas, more than others. California, you know, Southern California kind of comes to mind. Talk to me about some of the solutions that people have been putting forward, and we can talk about others too, but um, man, I mean, is there any problem we couldn't fix by just throwing some cash at it? Yeah, exactly. So this was an article in the National Review online, and it's a response to a study that has been making the rounds uh, for quite a bit, but a lot of uh, kind of venues have picked it up. You know, the, Guard- the Guardian ran a headline that said that, you know, the, a Canada study debunks stereotypes of homeless people uh, and their spending habits. A lot of other venues have picked it up. So I looked a little bit deeper into the actual study. So it's a uh, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And in this study, they gave um, cash transfers to a group of homeless people uh, and of about $7,500 Canadian. And so uh, they found in the study, okay, people were able to uh, spend more time in housing and didn't have a lot of uh, negative side effects. And so that's kind of the um, story that has been circulated around. But when I look deeper into what they had actually done, um, there's kind of a alternate story that comes to the forefront. So they had first uh, taken a group uh, of homeless people from a shelter and given them a blind survey. And they used that survey to then sort them. They excluded anyone uh, in the cash transfers who had had any history of drug or alcohol abuse. Oh. And then they excluded anyone who had been homeless for longer than two years. So really just in the design of this study reveals that they're kind of uh, cherry picking and not being totally uh, upfront about uh, kind of the uh, motivation behind this study. Wow. Well, okay. Now I can understand from the standpoint of someone administering such a program, oh, we want to make it look as good as possible. But I mean, that gets into like, that sounds more like fabrication than, you know, honest reporting and accountability for for the money used. Now, having said this, this this doesn't mean that there aren't other solutions that, that might work better. Let's talk, Noah, about some of the some of the solutions that uh, that may not be so obvious. OK, everybody can agree. Ah, well, let's throw some money at it. That's one thing. What are some of the solutions that, that may be a little more complex, but more likely to have a lasting result? Yeah, so I think that's a good point of talking about complexity here. I think that's where we should start. Because uh, this study, for instance, really only ended up giving money to 50 people in the end. And that wasn't a good uh, representation wow. of the problem, I think. So the real, I think, underlying harm is that it does distract from the complexity. It distracts from actual solutions that we should be thinking about together. This doesn't. Uh, this article wasn't trying to say, hey, let's ignore the problem. It really is, let's find solutions that don't distract further. So when we think about the homelessness crisis, there's a few things going on, right? We have um, one crisis of mental health and issues related to that. And then another crisis related to substance abuse, which of course this study kind of totally um, overlooks. And then underlying, there's a lot of uh, brokenness in family that contributes uh, you know, to, to both of these problems as well. So we have to think about complexity here and we have to think about what are ways that are going to actually solve the underlying problems. And that's, uh, you know, I have to, I have to wonder if, you know, some of those problems are going to be better solved um, outside of the, the government sphere or the state's sphere. Um, I mean, I don't know. 
I, maybe, yeah. maybe Noah, you can tell me. Maybe we're beyond that point where, for charity, traditional community charity, could deal with a homelessness problem. Maybe is is it something so big that only government can deal with it? Yeah, so that's an interesting sleight of hand here because when we talk about cash transfers, right, in the kind of public sphere, we're of course talking about government cash transfers. That's that's kind of the uh, NPR answer to everything, right? Um, is the federal government doing something? It's not that cash transfers on a private level uh, couldn't work in some capacity. And in fact, lots of uh, places have different uh, programs to assist people. Lots of churches do some sort of rent assistance, right, where people come to them and say, I really need help to not be homeless this month. And lots of little local churches will do this. Generally, they're doing it pretty quietly. They're not uh, kind of broadcasting it, but it's happening. There's also a lot of um, assistance from small organizations where there's a lot more relationship with the people getting um, the help. And so that I think is crucial because a lot of studies on poverty and homelessness show that it's not just a monetary poverty, it's also a poverty of social connection uh, and the assistance that comes through that. That's, that is an interesting explanation and it makes a ton of sense. I, I appreciate you including it. Um, what are some of the biggest places right now in terms of uh, what are some of the areas that are struggling with homelessness most? I mean, you mentioned this was a Canadian study. Are, are we seeing this on the uptick everywhere? There are large, you know, urban centers. Is it extending to the, you know, is there rural homelessness as well? Yeah, so rural homelessness uh, is a lot more hidden than some of the urban homelessness that we see. So, yeah, I think there are a lot of different types of homelessness. There's some people who are uh, in their cars and a lot of homeless people do in fact work. So it, it is uh, not kind of the most uh, public form of homelessness that actually is the, you know, the main uh, core of this problem. There are a lot of places that are on kind of where homelessness is on an uptick or at least visible homelessness is. And part of this is the political battle that is happening between a lot of cities where they are in essence, moving people around. So that's a, really a solution that does lack compassion for people because it is just pushing the problem somewhere else. A lot of cities are at that point where instead of actually trying to solve anything, they're just they're just pushing the problem off. I yeah, I, I actually I know of, of at least a couple of cities where it was the the procedure of the police department, you know, and they would, were citing somebody for vagrancy or for homelessness. They would often buy them a bus ticket somewhere else and and you're right this is something you point out in your article noah and and it just it bears mentioning again and that is um that we have to solve these problems with uh, with an eye towards um not oversimplifying it you know remembering that, that we're dealing with human beings and um maybe dig more into the actual problems i don't know you you said it very beautifully in in your article um it's it's easy to it's easy to just, you know, do the impersonal solution, kick the can down the road, as you mentioned, or make it somebody else's problem or throw money at it. But the stuff that's going to work, it's going to take some investment, isn't it? Yeah. And in fact, a lot of the organizations and solutions that give me hope are those local organizations that are doing uh, work that is solving specific problems in a specific place and actually having relationship with people. So these are things like job chain, uh, training programs, 
short-term housing, paired with counseling, uh, paired with uh, support and mentoring. And these types of programs have great track records because they're able to actually address people on an individual level, uh, have personal care for them. Yes, there's going to be some cash assistance, there's going to be some short-term help, but hopefully creating a long-term effect of actually helping people get on their feet and create stable lives for themselves. Which is the goal, right? It's not... Yeah. Not, not that we all have adult children sleeping on our couch, you know, <laughs> well into, into into their 40s. Again, we're talking with Noah Gould. Uh, Noah, for the sake of those who wish to follow you on social media or otherwise would like to, uh, to follow your work, where can they find you? You can find a lot of my writing on acton.org. That's A-C-T-O-N.org. I also am starting a Substack, so feel free to subscribe at gouldstandard.substack.com. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Benjamin Koshman back to the the program. Uh, it hasn't been too long, but for those meeting you for the first time, uh, Benjamin, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, my name's Ben. I work for a bipartisan public affairs firm in Washington, D.C., and I'm also a contributor with Young Voices, and I like to write and talk about energy, the environment, and climate issues from a conservative, market-oriented perspective. And I'm looking at a really good, thought-provoking article that you've written. Um, The title, Increasing the Birth Rate is Critical to Combating Climate Change. Now, Ben, we all know that too many people is the problem. I mean, look, that the first place I would have thought that anybody concerned about climate change, oh, yeah, they're going to think overpopulation is, is a huge problem, too. You, uh, you, you turn that argument on its head. Tell me about it. Yeah. So I'm sure you've seen tons of folks talk about how even in jest, we need a new plague or the world is too big and they're not going to have kids because... You know, that's just one more mouth to feed. And uh, unfortunately, um, you know, it is a bit of a counterintuitive argument, but actually having less children means that we'll have more resource scarcity. So it takes a little bit of uh, a little bit of brain work to actually figure out why that's the case. But as the population declines, you have less, you have fewer people working on innovative technologies. And when you have less innovative technology, you have fewer solutions that actually allow us to utilize uh, fewer resources, if that makes sense. So that's the whole story of humanity has been an ever expanding population creating better technology to allow us to extract more value from fewer resources. You know, we use less farmland now than we've ever used in all of human history. We're able to use energy resources that are far more dense than we've ever used before, going from, you know, low density fuels like wood and coal to high density fuels like natural gas or nuclear, for example. But 
you know, if the music stops, if suddenly we have a population that is mostly elderly, supported by an ever dwindling number of actual workers, we're, we're going to be screwed because the economy is going to stagnate. All of that innovation that we've benefited from up to this point is going to stop. You know, the, the carousel is going to stop and we're going to be stuck. And so that's what I'm really concerned about. And I want people who think that having less chill, having fewer children is actually better for the climate to just stop and reconsider that it actually might be better for the climate to have more children. Well, and I love you point out in your article that uh, this is not some new fad that has just been happening along. This Malthusian thinking's been been around. It's been around for hundreds of years. In fact, uh, you talk a little bit about Thomas Malthus, who is kind of the patron saint of of, of this kind of, of thinking. Um, tell me a little bit about his story. What was he predicting, and and how have people like him, you know, been been heard throughout the ages? Yeah, of course. So Thomas Malthus was a political economist in, uh, in England um, a little over 200 years ago. He predicted, you know, at the early onset of the Industrial Revolution that um, population growth was exponential, but resource allocation wasn't. So population growth would eventually outstrip the supply of resources that we um, that we have and that we utilize, and eventually everybody would starve. Which <laughs> was his basic premise, and that led him to have some pretty insane beliefs. Like he he basically proposed we should cut off support for the poor and uh, wow. essentially just let them let them you know basically mercy kill them because uh, allowing for more people would just be sort of delaying the inevitable. So his ideology has birthed some pretty, I would just say, reprehensible beliefs of you know, population control. I mean, it is basically the impetus for horrible policies like China's one-child policy, um, you know, social engineering um, at the highest degree. But um, I think it's very safe to say that he was wrong because we've been able to expand the population while also um, expanding uh, the um, average lifespan and reducing the number of people that live in um, in abject poverty. I mean, in 1800, a right. uh, little over 85 to 90 percent of the world lived in abject poverty, which is like less than a dollar 25 a day, and now that number is less than 10 percent. And in 1800, I think the population of the world was like a billion, and now it's almost 8 billion. So that in and of itself really disputes his problem. But in a, in a sort of counterintuitive way, we might actually see his prediction come true, a resource scarcity um, issue. But it'll come true not because of an ever-expanding population, but because of a declining population. Yeah, that's that one takes a little bit to get your mind around. But Ben, mm -hmm. the, I, I think you're right. And, you know, we, we have a pretty fair amount of time to look at as to how humanity has improved its its position. Thank you, by the way, for pointing out we, our news media points at so many things. In fact, pretty much everything that's bad that's going on in the world, what someone said to someone or about someone or what they did, that seems to be the the news that matters, but you'd miss things like you had pointed out that, hey, 
along the way, yes, there were some things that are going wrong, but uh, world poverty has dropped to, to the lowest point, as, as far as I know, in, ever, in recorded ever. history. Yes, absolutely. And all that is thanks to, well, thanks, in my opinion, to two things, capitalism and fossil fuels. The combination of those two things uh, brought, you know, really brought to the forefront by the Industrial Revolution have brought the largest percentage of humans out of poverty in all in all of recorded history. So basically, there, there are like two big things that you really need to wrap your head around to see why declining population could be so dangerous. One is what's called the dependency ratio. Um, it's basically the percentage of the population that is not working and is supported by um, the labor force. So that's um, basically folks outside, uh, younger than 15 and older than, uh, older than 64, so retirees and, and children. So we are in a unique stage, which few societies throughout history have ever gotten to, where our average lifespan is uh, vastly increasing, but the birth rate is dropping. And there are, you know, good reasons, I guess you could say, for why the birth rate is dropping. You know, increased uh, access to healthcare, uh, education, increased urbanization. Um, but right now we're below the replacement rate, and um, the replacement rate is 2.1 kids per mother, um, 0.1 to combat or like to um, make up for like infant mortality. But that is basically the rate of children that each woman on average needs to have in order to replace the um, the people that are dying. So right now, I think our um, average uh, fertility rate is like 1.6. Japan's is far lower than that. And that's because when you're in an urban setting, um, kids are no longer an asset like they are in a rural or you know an agricultural setting. They're a liability in a city. They're just another night. Not, I know this is not a way to think about it, but from the perfectly economic point of view, they are another mouth to feed, and they're not actually True. providing you any yeah. economic value. Um, they're not working the family farm or, you know, tilling the grounds. I mean, just from a purely um, numerical or a, a purely economic perspective. So that's why birth rates have been declining. So eventually, we're going to get to a point where Social Security is going to become. Um, at risk of becoming totally insolvent. Um, taxes are going to have to increase to support an ever-expanding pool of retirees of supported by an ever-dwindling pool of workers. And then second is that innovation thing that I mentioned. Like, we have been very lucky to have, you know, an ever-expanding pool of smart people working on uh, innovative technologies, particularly in agriculture, that allow us to do more with less uh, with less land. But if that pool of uh, people dwindles, then the innovations that they come up with will dwindle as well, and will basically not maybe not regress, but will sort of be stuck. Um, uh, where we are right now and um, have to uh, basically settle with the technologies that we've created up to this point. So those are the two things I'm really worried about. Ben, great to visit with you once again. Where can people find you on social media? 
Yes, you can follow me on Twitter at Ben Koshman, uh, just B-E-N-K-H-O-S-H-B-I-N. I tweet about all of these things and more. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment today on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Parker McCumber back to the program. Parker, good to see you again. Uh, For those meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a veteran and an entrepreneur, uh, and I've been a contributor for Young Voices for almost a full last year, uh, specializing in political policy and economics. Okay, so we've got uh, the general election is a year or so away, but we have a very timely topic in that I'm sure that there's going to be more and more focus on the Electoral College. Do we really need the Electoral College? You say emphatically, yeah, actually, that's it's in our interest to preserve it, safeguarding the Republic and the U.S. Constitution. Where do you begin to, to help people understand why this is a necessary part of our system? Where, where do you start to help them understand that? Sure. So uh, the article was written, the opinion was written based on a Pew Research study that showed a revealing number uh, or a growing number of Americans prefer popular vote to the Electoral College system. And to me, that underscores an alarming trend in the erosion of understanding and appreciating uh, what the Electoral College is, what it does, and the constitutionality of it. Um and I can recognize that maybe there's some allure to a pure popular vote and democracy in that regard. Uh, but overall, that really erodes the rights of the minority and suppresses voices and opinions. Uh, and the Electoral College, not only you know as a traditional aspect of our government and our election process, it's also a protection mechanism to ensure that we are protecting the rights and the voices and the opinions of the minority and representing all Americans and not just urban population centers. Wow. And, you know, for some reason, a lot of people get caught up in the numbers, though. But uh, but if this many people more, they don't understand that, uh, you know, the states were not viewed as one homogenous blob. You know, they, they had distinct interests to represent. And, and that's one of the right. things the Electoral College helps to ensure, it keeps that concept of federalism, you know, at least still somewhat alive. Absolutely. And I think that that's something that we are failing at as a society or, or educators uh, in making sure that, that young people understand. Uh, every state, every uh, territory essentially has unique interests and unique problems and challenges uh, that no one else is going to experience the same way. And the Electoral College ensures that their voices and needs are still heard and still represented. Well, and as you point out in your article, it, this wasn't the matter a matter of the, uh, the founding generation, you know, and the, those who wrote the Constitution. This wasn't them just, let's try some new experiment and throw caution to the wind. They had a very solid understanding of what happens when you do, um, you know, the popular vote thing, basically direct democracy. And... The, the conclusion is seldom, you know, a good result. Correct. Uh, and so, you know, when we talk about democracy, it's important to recognize that we're talking about the voices uh, of individuals, and that's great. But a pure democracy, a true democracy, uh, 
uh, is essentially just majority rule, and that turns into mob rule very quickly, yeah. historically anyways. Uh, and you run into these these problems where you can have you know a vast population that agrees with something, and they completely trample the rights of others. For example, uh, if, if you were to look at the state of California and the, the vast support for gun control, uh, a pure democracy would just eliminate gun rights of every American citizen in that state. Uh, and, and you run into an issue where people aren't represented appropriately there. No, that, that makes sense. And But how do we get past the attitude? And I know you encounter this as well as I do. People say, well, that was then. Look what kind of a country. Look what the nation looked like. That was 200 plus years ago. How could it possibly be relevant today? What are they missing by taking that, that uh, short-term view? Sure. So uh, in more recent times, uh, since you know maybe 2000, uh, twice the popular vote has not secured election victory in both times. Uh, that was a, a Republican candidate uh, with George W. Bush and with uh, Donald Trump, where they won the Electoral College and was elected, uh, but they failed to secure the majority of votes in a pure dem democratic system. Uh, so when I, I view that problem, initially to me, the Democrat support for that seems like a, a way for them to almost just mute, silence, and uh, prevent Republican voices or conservative voices uh, from really having a say or having a shot at a presidency. Uh, and that's not to say that there won't ever be a conservative um, or, or a, a Republican candidate who wins a popular vote again. Uh, but the trend is maybe suggesting that by eliminating the Electoral College, Democrats can seize power uh, through their, their sheer control of densely populated urban areas. Um, and so that's concerning to me. Yeah, it's. I, I have to wonder if, uh, if someone does succeed in getting rid of the Electoral College, I, I just can't help but wonder if that isn't, isn't going to be... You know, if that isn't going to fuel things like, I don't know if you've heard of like the greater Idaho movement for part of Oregon and Washington wants to leave Oregon and Washington and just consider us Idaho. I, it seems to me that to the, the, um, the electoral college keeps the peace, you know, and this is, uh, this is one of the things that if you take it away, I think we will have fewer advantages, fewer, fewer opportunities to basically uh, bleed off some steam. Does that make sense? It, it does. And, and especially when you look at it in the lens of, you know, maybe the last year, year and a half, we've had this concept of the national divorce and uh, you know, talks of, of separation or secession. And, and I think removing the electoral college uh, removes the protection mechanism that prevents those things. Uh, for example, nobody in the Midwest wants to have their way of life and their policy dictated by someone in, you know, New York or Los Angeles that that doesn't know their problems, their struggles, the things that they have to, to work with and overcome, right? I, I mean, every uh, you know city and town has a different economic climate and a different political view and a different problem that they face, uh, and to forego the electoral college in favor of a, a national popular vote uh, is essentially foregoing local governments. It's foregoing state governments. It's starting to, uh, you know, take this, this 
um, vote and applying it strictly to the highest levels of government. That centralizes authority, and I think that that's a bad trend and a bad way to move. Uh, when you typically run into centralized authority and centralized decision-making, you start more and more aligning with principles of socialism and communism uh, that I don't think you know, best represents the American people. I really appreciated how your article showed that uh, even though our, our system of governance in a republic has different power centers, every voice still matters, you know, and, and people should be able to contribute their voice to the political process. But, and this is, this will get me in trouble for saying this, but some voices have more invested in them than, than others, particularly when those people are asked to represent, you know, a, a particular, you know, uh, constituency. Definitely. And you, and you bring up, um, you know, an interesting thought when you talk about more voices or, or voices having more, you know, weight or responsibility to them, to some of them. Uh, I've noticed kind of an alarming trend, particularly in younger populations where voting is just a popularity thing for them. It's not necessarily who's going to be the best representative to their views and to their belief systems. Uh, and it, it, it kind of runs this weird social trend of, well, my friends are voting for somebody, so I should be voting for that person because we're all alike. Uh, and, and so I think when you start moving into like a pure democracy, you start thinking about uh, foregoing the electoral college, you're looking at, you know, these these biases and influences that absolutely have nothing to do with, is a candidate going to best represent me? Is a candidate going to best represent my belief system, my view system, my needs? Uh, and, and so it's, it's just a dangerous, you know, trajectory, a slippery slope for, for sure. Okay, I think you you make a wonderful case of why it's still relevant. Um, now the question is how we how do we get this out to to the people who need to hear it? Because it's those masses, the ones who are so proud to wield their vote, you know, that, that need to understand some of these auxiliary precautions that were built into our, our system of government. Definitely, that's a, a very difficult question. I think because ultimately, you know, you want to see local government and local education spearheading their local civics. Um, and, and we just don't actually get that, especially, you know, since we've had the Department of Education, we haven't been able to, um, you know, localize the needs of education and those curriculum to, to best, you know, suit the desires of parents or students. Uh, and with that, I think we've seen a decline in the civics education, the government education uh, across the nation. Um, and so people just aren't getting this information. They're not learning the historical significance of the Electoral College. They're not learning about how it's a protection against the tyranny of the majority. They're not learning about the preservation of minority rights. So uh, I think the best way for us to do that is uh, really just educate ourselves, educate those around us, and, and take the time to have these conversations. 